farm. Happy Easter to everybody. Glad that you are here. Uh, Kurt led you in this earlier, but uh, it won't hurt us to do it again. He is risen. All right. And uh, even with that fact now that we look back on this momentous uh, universe-changing event of 2,000 or so years ago, one uh, commentator notes that despite the teaching of Jesus... His followers had no expectation that he would actually rise from the dead, which is, of course, what he did. So today, we are in Matthew chapter 28 together. You have a full-page insert in your bulletin that is available for your convenience. Um, If you're in the Pew Bible, as I am, you'll find our scripture reading today, page 992 on over to the next. Uh, we'll, we'll deal with all of Matthew chapter 28 today. Uh, right now, I'm going to read for us the first 10 verses. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. Verse 8. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. This is God's word. Let's ask his blessing on it. Lord Jesus, even as those early believers uh, saw you, having risen from the dead, we pray that we would see you this morning, not uh, physically, but that we would trust your word that you would grant to us the gift of faith, that we would believe you and take you at your word, and uh, that your Holy Spirit would come and do his work ministering to us and letting us behold great and wonderful things, wondrous things from your law and from the gospel, this good news of Jesus Christ. For we pray in his name, amen. All right, we've got the scene at Jesus' grave. Fear not. In verses 1 through 10 that we just read, four times it talks about fear. And so we're going to talk for a fair bit uh, about fear this morning. Do not be afraid is the most common command found in Scripture. 
And so I want to, us to understand two types of fear. Uh, it's there for you, letter A, fear not. Number one, slavish fear versus filial fear. Um, words that maybe you don't use every day. I'm going to give you my definitions for each of them. Slavish fear, uh, shrinking back in dread of judgment. That's how I'm presenting this to you. Slavish fear is shrinking back in dread of judgment. It can just be you know, sort of being terrified as well. But it's the shrinking back versus filial fear, which I would define for us today as the healthy respect of sons and daughters. The word filial, you might know, relates to sonship. So filial fear, instead, it's very different. It's the healthy respect of sons and daughters. And so you have a couple of instances of uh, the slavish fear. First, we'll look at the guards. In, uh, in verse 4, it speaks of the guards as having trembled, and in fact, they fell down like dead men. What does that mean? They, in essence, passed out. And there's a little play on words in the original language of the New Testament, the, the Greek here, um, because there's mention of an earthquake, and it's the same root that is used to describe, only a few words later, the quaking of the guards. And so, in essence, uh, an angel came and brought an earthquake, and oh, how the guards did shake. Something like that, a play on words in the original language. And so, they, they, they pass out, they shrink back in fear at the prospect they'd never seen. Now, they're prepared, the Roman soldiers, they've been posted at the tomb. They're prepared for the possibility of thieves who might come and attempt to steal the body, but they're, they're looking for the possibility of human opponents. And now there's this earthquake, and the stone is rolled away, and this angelic figure who is a bright angel in, in bright, like, white clothing because of his proximity to God and, and his holiness. And they're not prepared for that. So in verses 5 and 10, the angel has to say um, to these folks, to, to the ladies, do not be afraid. And that's what Jesus says to them as well. Do not be afraid in this same way that the guards are. The guards have this slavish fear. And so both the angel and the risen Lord tell this group of women, don't fear like that. And yet, in verse 8, the women are elated and they have reverence and awe for God at the same time. They run away with fear as well as with joy. Verse 8, they departed from the tomb with fear and great joy. Interesting how that's mixed together. R.C. Sproul remarks, what an interesting combination of emotions. So filial fear is this healthy respect that sons and daughters have. These women, they're elated, um, but they know that the fear of the Lord, in terms of this healthy respect, is, as the scriptures say, the, the beginning of wisdom. Uh, from the Proverbs, the, the end of Ecclesiastes, says the whole purpose of man, the whole duty of man, is to have this reverence, this healthy respect, this sort of fear for God. And sometimes I think as believers, we sort of struggle to understand the difference between the two, particularly because later in the New Testament, you can just listen to this, but in 1 John chapter 4, verse 18, 
tells us there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So what is that speaking to? We, we like to cite part of that verse in the church. Perfect love casts out fear. So, Christian, you should have no fear. Well, which is it? Have fear or, or, or don't? Well, it's a both and. It's don't have this slavish fear. Don't have this shrinking back in dread of judgment. But do maintain a healthy reverence, awe, and respect and reverence for God. In the end of Luke chapter 1, Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, prophesied that because of the coming of Christ, people would be able to serve him without fear. Again, that's a reference to that slavish sort of fear. Many of us like to memorize Romans 8 chapter 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we, we don't fear God in that respect, the slavish sense, because the judgment, the wrath, was poured out on Christ. He drank the cup of God's wrath for us. So we need not fear God slavishly, and yet we still reverence him. Commentator Leon Morris notes that uh, these faithful women, by the way, were the last at the cross and the first at the tomb. Think about that scene on Friday afternoon. They had seen their Lord crucified. They participated uh, with Joseph of Arimathea in seeing the body of Jesus hastily laid in a tomb because sundown was approaching. The Sabbath was coming. The other gospel writers tell us that when the Sabbath was complete, which would have been sunset Saturday, they went and they obtained spices. And now we have the scene in the last chapter of Matthew, Matthew 28. They've, they've gone to the tomb in anticipation of finding a body. And yet that's not what they find. And so it is for this reason that we preach Christ crucified, verse 5, and risen, verses 6 and 7. This is point two in your outline. Under fear not, Letter A, we preach Christ crucified and risen. Crucified, put on a stake, impaled on a cross, becoming a public spectacle, becoming a curse. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Uh, the Apostle Peter, with the rest of the apostles, testifies to the Jewish high camp High Council in Acts chapter 5 at verse 30. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. What is repentance? Repentance is a change of mind, a change of heart a change of disposition towards God. The scriptures elsewhere tell us that it's God's kindness that leads us to this change, that leads us to repentance. And through the resurrection of Christ, there is forgiveness of sins. And so we preach Christ crucified first. That means truly dead. 
In his humanity, he truly died. As I said, the women expected to find a body, a dead one. And yet they found, ultimately, a risen Savior, verses 6 and 7. And that is the Christian faith, this Easter and always, the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It's more than his memory living on in our hearts. It's more than his cause continues. It's more than, well, he left an indelible example for us or he, he founded a religion. No. All of human history hangs on whether Jesus bodily rose from the dead, just as he said that he would do. Earlier in Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 16, let's see, at verse 21. I didn't flag this one, so give me just a moment to get there. Maybe I did. Yes, I did. Matthew 16, 21 is about Jesus foretelling his death and resurrection. It says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. We could find other similar uh, accounts in the scriptures. In John's gospel, for example, with his closest followers in the upper room, he's doing what communicators call inoculation. He's preparing, you know, a lot of us are interested in inoculation these days. Uh, and his sort of inoculation was preparing them for what was to come. And over and over, he kept telling his disciples that he would have to first suffer and be cruelly treated at the hands of wicked men. But then he would rise from the dead. So this should have come as no great surprise, and yet, and yet, it seems to. So we've distinguished between slavish fear, which we no longer need to have as believers in Christ, and filial fear, that sort of healthy respect for God that we would always maintain. We've talked about preaching Christ crucified and risen. He's risen bodily from the dead. Uh, one quick note about that, later where the women encounter the risen Christ. And it says they bow down and they worship him. They pay homage to him. They kiss his feet. They touch his feet. Further evidence that it is a bodily resurrection from the dead, not a vision or an apparition or anything like that. Well, number three, under fear not, why was the stone rolled away by a bright angel? It wasn't so Jesus could walk out. He didn't need assistance. It was so that these women, and later John and then Peter, and we who have received their testimony could see that the tomb was empty. He is not here. There's nobody home. Come and see. You can come and check it out for yourself. These women who expected a dead body, a, a corpse, and planned a burial ceremony because just under the wire for the Sabbath, Friday before sunset, Joseph and Nicodemus together anointed him in part, but these women wanted to honor the Lord and to complete that, and that was their expectation, was to lovingly 
respectfully, out of loyalty, to address the dead body of their teacher. And instead, they find that the tomb is empty. This bright angel is seated now on the stone. Perhaps you have pictured in your mind or you've seen pictures of those sorts of huge stones estimated by, by most to be somewhere between a ton and a half to two tons. And it would, the women pondered on the way, how are we going to, who's going to move the stone for us? The scriptures tell us. And they find the stone had been rolled away by the angel and the angel's sitting on it. I've always thought of it like um, standing up, like a coin on its uh, side and thought of the angels sitting up on top of it. One commentator that I read this week suggested that he had rolled the stone and laid it down and was sitting on it that way. Doesn't really matter the position of the stone. And ultimately, I would remind you that our faith is not in the empty tomb, but instead in the risen Savior. It's in the fact that Jesus is alive. So the angel is seated, having descended from heaven, perhaps in fulfillment of Jesus' own words to Nathaniel and the rest of the disciples in John chapter 1, where he talks about seeing angels descending and ascending on the Son of Man. And this harkens back, if you know the story, not going to go there, but to Genesis and Jacob's ladder, right? Genesis chapter 28. And this indicates that there is a way for man and God who are separated because of God's holiness and man's sin, there is a way for them to meet and have do. And, and heaven meets earth in the person of Jesus the Christ. Angels announced his birth and likewise they herald his resurrection. And this leads to the joy of worship. Number four, the joy of worship. They, they kissed his feet. They reverenced him as Lord and King. And they ran. Isn't that interesting? The angel did tell them to go quickly. Well, they take him at his word and they run. These grown women, I don't know what they did with the spices. The scripture doesn't tell us. Did they pitch him or do they hustle them home? I don't know. I, I, it, it doesn't really matter. But they're running with jubilation, this healthy fear. This is good news that you must go and tell quickly. They have great delight. One source says that this is grace recognized. Grace recognized. In the scriptures, there seems to be this pattern. We see this early on in the ministry of the calling of the disciples with Jesus. And we see it here at the resurrection of Jesus. It's come and see, followed by go and tell. Come and see, and then go and tell. There's a new book out called Rejoice and Tremble. I love the subtitle. It's by a, a reform writer named Michael Reeves. Rejoice and Tremble. The subtitle is The Surprising Good News of the Fear of the Lord. The Surprising Good News of the Fear of the Lord. And he urges that we rejoice in this strange paradox that the gospel both frees us from fear and gives us fear. Which is what I was trying to say earlier, right? It frees us from slavish fear and it gives us filial fear, the healthy awe, reverence, and respect, that of 
sons and daughters who are adopted into God's family. The healthy biblical fear of God is a delight to his people. Then we get to the cover story. So we presented to you the, the good news. And now we'll see in verses 11 through 15, there are two groups on the move. Not only are these women running with a mixture of healthy fear and joy, jubilation, but there are others that leave the site. We continue in Matthew chapter 28 now, verses 11 through 15. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. This day being the writing of Matthew's gospel, you know, mid-first century, an early church father testifies in mid-second century that the same fairy tale was still in circulation. So we've got two groups on the move, the women and the soldiers. William Hendrickson notes, the women were on their way to spread the truth about the resurrection. And the soldiers were going to allow themselves to be used and to hush the truth and hold forth a lie. Two groups on the move. Both agree that the body of Jesus is gone from the tomb. Risen or stolen? What do you think? These soldiers, by the way, were Roman soldiers, but they were put... Uh, in, uh, under the charge of the Jewish leaders, the Jewish authorities. And so they go, even though they are Roman, Gentile, non-Jewish people, and they go and they tell the chief priests, the Jewish leaders, who then get all the elders together and they hold counsel. Well, what are we going to do? Here's, here's what they say. Here's the account. The body's gone. Nobody can find the body. And this is what they say happened. So there's an oral report, verse 11. Do they come back? Do the soldiers say, hey, there was this angel and Jesus is risen from the dead and now we believe and y'all ought to believe too. Can't beat them, join them. Is that what they say? Not exactly. They, they describe what has happened, but they're not sure what to do of it, with it, what to make of it. So verse 12, there's, there's payola, payoff, hush money. Verse 13, it's, it, it's a lie. Invasion of the body snatchers, anyone? They say, and this, this fairy tale that they concoct, these Roman soldiers, a crack group of them, who upon perhaps even as great a measure as pain of death, were never to sleep on duty, are supposed to go and say, the disciples came while we all were asleep. If they're asleep, how they know who came and did what? In fact, they were awake. They were on duty. It wasn't until the angel shows up that they 
pass out. So there's collusion, verse 15, there's collusion to suppress the truth, both Jew and Gentile, both Roman soldier, Jewish high priest, and elder. There's collusion. This is a story about money, a fairy tale, and the promise of, of some sort of amnesty or protection. What do you make of all this? One Christian speaker writes, this means that either one of the women sweet-talked the guards while the other two moved the stone and tiptoed off with the body, or else guys like Peter, remember how brave he was, and Thomas, remember how easily convinced he was, overpowered the guards, stole the body, and fabricated a myth. These theories hardly seem plausible. The guard was too powerful, the stone too heavy, and the disciples, not yet experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit, were too spineless to attempt such a feat. So it's a cover story. And then the last section of our chapter, Matthew 28, we've got the Great Commission, a classic passage often spoken to in the church with regard to missions and evangelism, the outreach of the church. Let's look at that together. In Matthew 28, we're now on page 993, the last five verses, verses 16 through 20. So some time has elapsed. The 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So there are 11 left because of Judas, who betrayed Jesus. And point one, under letter C, the Great Commission, worship versus doubt. We've already talked a little bit about worship. What about doubt? Their faith wavered. Um, commentators are split on exactly why this was, this unspecified location on the mountain known to the disciples. Jesus meets with them there, and perhaps, uh, perhaps there were yet others in attendance. We don't know that. We know the 11 were there. Perhaps they didn't know it was Jesus at first. He's now made multiple post-resurrection appearances to them. And we know that the disciples go on to believe. And of course, then the Holy Spirit is poured out on all of them, and that makes all the difference. But there are some doubts, some wavering in their faith. Remember doubting Thomas, mentioned, I think, in Kurt's prayer and in our call to worship this morning. Remember doubting Thomas? He was a scientist. He wanted empirical evidence. Unless I can touch, I will not believe. And Jesus shows up and says in so many words, go for it. He has no need. He falls. He worships, saying, my Lord and my God, when you have an encounter with the risen Christ, the appropriate response is worship. And that's what Thomas does. The resurrection of Christ 
and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the word of God make all the difference to these disciples. And it makes all the difference for we who believe in Christ today. Before we leave this point entirely, I would just say, if you're working through your doubts, bring them to Jesus. We were talking about this Wednesday night at Bible study that too many times people who are in and around the church make a grave mistake. They're going through some difficulties. They're wrestling with personal matters. They're struggling with sin. They're doubting. And what is their response? What is their remedy? They make a conscious decision to then stay away from the church, from God's people, and from God's word for a time. Friend, I've been in ministry a good while. I've never had anybody come back to me later and say, that time that I spent away from the church, Pastor, I want, I want to let you know I spent gobs and gobs of time in God's word by myself, and, and now I'm really strong in the faith. I've never had that experience. Don't make that mistake. If you're wavering in your faith, bring those doubts to Christ. He, he's big enough. He can handle it. Work them out in his presence. Remain in the church close to the word of God and the people of God. Worship versus doubt. And then we've got the command to make disciples, point two. Make disciples is the central command here. Train up learners and followers. Those of you who, like myself, have been in the church a long time, as many of you all here today are, are such people. You've heard this your whole lives. It's the central command of this passage. And this passage is worth a sermon or a series of sermons by itself, I have only moments to make a few remarks. Make disciples is the imperative. It is the command here. And then there are the participles. Go, verse 19, as you are going. Baptizing and teaching, that's the activity. Baptizing in the triune name of God. One name, three persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. These three are one God, right? Equal in power and glory and, and substance, their divine essence. So why is baptism mentioned here? Christians hear the word baptism in the New Testament and immediately they start thinking about, about the water. And there is something about the water that's significant. Here I would say baptism has to do with making public your profession of faith in Christ. That's part of marking, being marked out with the sign and seal of God's covenant of grace to man. And then teach, teaching. So one baptism, but a lifetime of discipleship, a lifetime of following Christ. One time to receive Christian baptism with water in the triune name of God. Our, our belief is by a duly ordained minister. One time, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, but a lifetime of discipleship, a lifetime of learning a lifetime of being Jesus' pupil or disciple. And a lot of times when, when you've, you've heard missions conferences and, and, and folks talk about this passage, the, the Great Commission, and, and they emphasize the going and the teaching, but sometimes they leave out the fact that we are to teach all, not just to make converts and leave them on their own, but to make disciples and to teach all. In Acts, it talks about 
the whole counsel of God. Paul testifies in Acts 20 in his farewell to the Ephesian elders that he didn't shrink back from testifying to them about the whole counsel of God. And so instruction, learning the word of God, uniting that with faith in your heart, putting it into practice, new obedience. When it says observe, observing here in verse 20, teaching them to observe all, that's not talking about with a magnifying glass. To observe is more than watching over. To observe here is to obey, to keep that word, to implement it in your life, united with faith in Christ. And it's the whole counsel of God, all of Christ's words and commands. One of them that was ringing in my ears this morning, uh, our brother prayed about it in the pastoral prayer, love one another. It's important that we have the whole teaching of Christ. That's why it is our, our habit here at Grace Presbyterian Church to teach through books of the Bible sequentially. Next week, we'll return to our study on Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 6. Recently, we've studied together 1 Peter and Ezra and 2 Timothy. Why? It's good for the people of God. It's good for the preacher. And it's also a safeguard. So you're not just cherry-picking. Pastor is not just using the pulpit as a bully pulpit, a soapbox for his pet causes. But you're teaching through the word of God. I invite you to come back next week. If you don't have a place where you worship regularly, we'd love to have you with us. Go, make disciples. Teach all. Baptizing. Making disciples is the central command. And last thing, the gospel and the Great Commission end with a promise. Jesus has all authority, verse 18, and his presence makes all the difference. Jesus has all authority, that's power to act. It's been conferred upon him by the Father, whom he obeyed perfectly. And he laid down his life, not only his satisfaction for sin, but to propitiate the Father's wrath to satisfy divine justice. And so he now has jurisdiction. He has the wherewithal. He has all authority. PCA pastor and seminary professor Dan Doriani says, by his death and resurrection, he did all a king must do for his people. He defeated their greatest enemies. Sin, Satan, and death. He protected them from the dangers brought on by the penalty and pollution of sin. And he provided for their welfare by giving them eternal life. Jesus has all authority. And the second part of our last point is that his presence makes all the difference. The very tail end of verse 20, Jesus speaking says, Behold, I am with you always. Behold. Down south we'd say, looky here. <laughs> he is with us. This is his eminence. The gospel starts out by talking about Emmanuel, God with us. Occasionally with us. With us when you need him. With us when you're desperate. With us. When you need help, well, our God is a very present help in time of trouble. 
But it's not just sometimes, it's always, to the end, at each and every turn. And when he says, I am with you, I remind you, I am is the name for God, for God. John's gospel doesn't have a monopoly on it. I am with you presently. Even to the end of the age, even if that's eons. And so by the resurrection of Christ, this Easter and always, Jesus has inaugurated his kingdom. It continues at this time. And someday he will return for us in the same way at the consummation of all things. Until then and always and after that, his presence makes all the difference. Let's pray.